Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. One of the great stories of Davos is away from all the fancy guests, the CEOs, the gazillionaires and that. This place has a wonderful set of policymakers, thinkers about what we actually do. Tony Frado, I saw last night, of course, his representation of President Bush, uh, Eric Cantor, Republican congressman for years. And it was good to see as well. Gene Sperling, he is a tennis player from Minnesota, and of course two, not one, but two tours of duty with the National Economic Council for Democrat uh, Presidents. Gene, wonderful to catch up with you. How does this president avoid a double fault? You're on the other side of the aisle. How does this president get through this widely anticipated speech? Well, I think it's difficult for him because, uh, you know, on one hand, he's coming to Davos at a time where it's, you know, Tom, it's not like 2009, you know, where, you know, or other times where the the economy is really, you know, in danger. This is a time where the U.S. economy has been growing for eight years. Uh, The global economy is looking a little bit solid. So there's not a, a sense of panic. He's obviously trying to, in every way, he can take a little credit for it. But I think the hard thing is, is that he has proven to be both at home and abroad, a very divisive figure. And, you know, Tom, I talked to some people in the travel and tourism industry who say that uh, the travel and tourism industry in the United States is not sharing as much in the recent growth because comments and attitudes, uh, uh, divisiveness by, you know, Trump has... uh, Right discouraged a lot of people from vacation in the United States. So, you know, I, it's, it's, I think there seems to be so far some effort to try to be a tiny bit more conciliatory. But, you know, I think it's going right. to take a lot, both at home yeah. and abroad. At the same time, he might do that at home right now. He has a very divisive immigration stance that right. uh, that. That offends people both in the well, countries people come from as well as the ones in the United States. Let me bring in my colleague, Tim Fox. Well, Tim? you know, um, uh, Gene Sperling, wanted, if you could just offer what specifically or who specifically do you want to meet or accomplish at Davos? Is there a person that you want to speak to that you don't? <laughs> no, seriously, because I'm trying to understand, you know, yeah. a lot of people spend a lot of time and money going and. There's got to be in the back of their mind this concept of, okay, it was a win. What would be a win for Gene Sperling, other than meeting Tom well, Keene? Well, of course, re- re- reunite, re- reuniting with Tom is, is a win. But, you know, first of all, I'm fortunate <laughs> because I'm what's called on the stewardship board for economic inclusion. So I'm invited to participate without having to pay the big fees. Um, but I find, you know, I find there's two things. One, you, re- you reunite with people. You know, I had a chance to talk at length with both Al Gore and John Kerry, you know, two people I've worked for in the past you don't see all the time. Secondly, uh, there's issues where you can throw yourself into. So I think one of the big issues that was focused on here, unfortunately not being focused on as much in the United States policy-wise, is the whole issue of automation, uh, you know, will this be on a continuum? Will there be less jobs? You know, who's got the best 
uh, social safety network for uh, dealing with this. So I got to be in a board in a meeting where I was with the Minister of Finance from Canada, with the Minister of Finance from Sweden, uh, uh, with top officials from Norway. That ability to talk about something about what's the effect right. of robots, of automation, and compare what different countries are doing, that's something that you can do uniquely in Davos that it's very hard to do when you're just you know sitting in an right. office in California or Washington, D.C. Gene Sperling, uh, this is a way for you to remit, but it matters. We have Greg Vallier coming up, of course, with the, the how Washington is fixated on the Russia's set of Russia investigations. I had breakfast this morning with Jane Harmon, a most interesting congresswoman. We were reminiscing about Watergate and our thoughts about it. How consumed is the Washington that Gene Sperling knows with the Mueller investigation? Well, I think that Gene Sperling, the citizen, is very concerned that this particular president is really taking down certain basic core values that would have all united us on basic respect for freedom of the press, basic respect for the truth, and basic respect for the rule of law. So for me, Tom, what I'm most concerned about is, you know, let the rule of law play out. When I see people who are unimpeachable, like Bob Mueller, you know, a Republican, a war hero, FBI, when I see people attacked, when I see implication that some people could be above the law, those things bother me. I'm you know, I, I'm somebody who's, you know, doesn't want to declare guilt or innocence. I want a fair investigation, but I want a commitment to the rule of law. And when I see that yeah. being eroded, that deeply worries well, me as, as a United States citizen. Gene, thank you so much for the effort to catch up with us here. And uh, I tell you, folks, Davos has never been turned on its head like this moment. Honored to speak with Gene Sperling. We are enthused that we bring to you today for an extended period, Mr. Gregory Vellier of Horizon Investments. He writes a piercing note each morning that is read across all of Washington and our political economics, and I might also point out on our economic politics as well. Greg, I want to get to the president's speech, but first we have to talk about your title today, the Mueller bombshell. Describe for us why this time is different as Mr. Mueller speaks of the president in the investigation. Well, Tom, quite simply, Trump wanted Mueller fired. Uh, I believe the account in the New York Times and other papers, no one really is uh, denying it other than the president, of course, calls it fake news. Here's the big thing. He wanted him fired. An underling, his attorney, said no. I think he still wants him fired, and we get more indictments in the next few weeks. Right. The nuance in your report, and of course this is a huge distraction, folks, uh, to the president in a speech uh, here in Davos, and you go into this, Greg, it's not so much firing, but pardoning. Should we anticipate that if this moves forward, the president pardons, or critically, if he pardons before the investigations end? I think it's on the table, just as firing uh, Mueller was on the table last summer. I don't think they've ever left the table. So, yes, pardons, I think, are still in the mix. 
Pim Fox, you uh, know the zeitgeist in America a lot better than I do here in Happy Valley. Well, I just want to ask Greg Valier, uh, Valier, what do you think this is going to do for the midterm elections? What's the arithmetic for uh, House and Senate seats? I think I think opinions are pretty much dug in. If you like Trump, you're going to vote Republican. Yeah. If you don't, you're not. I don't know if this changes that many votes, but it is a distraction from the immigration bill, from infrastructure, from the budget. All these things that have to be dealt with, I think, now get obscured by this explosive new story. So how many seats do you believe the Republicans might lose in the House? I'd say at least 20. 24 is the magic number where the Democrats would take over. It's a very, very close call. But let's say the House is basically tied. I think then there will be a vote to indict yeah. or impeach. Then it goes to the Senate, and here's the bottom line, guys. Are there really 67 votes in the Senate to convict? I'm not quite sure we're there. Well, you know, I want to rip up the script here, Pim, and we're, we're, we're going here from Washington discussion, folks, to, of course, what the president will say in a few minutes here. We'll shift over to Mr. Villiers' view on the speech. But, but Greg, if the, this is something, this is like Civics 101. If the Democrats, quote unquote, take over, can they reverse what they oppose? Is a lot of this stuff unreversible? A, a lot of what stuff, Tom? The things the president has done that upset the Democrats. Oh, no. Or... Oh, I get it. Oh, here's, here's another really crucial point. Trump's veto is still good. Uh, let's say the Republicans do poorly in both houses. There still are not enough votes to override a veto. So there's not going to be some activist left-wing Congress that can shove things down his throat in the next two years. The, the votes aren't there. Greg, is there a possibility that the president will be able to uh, escape any particular personal blame? Sure. I mean, he's got more Teflon than any president I've ever seen. You know, Trump and porn star, nobody cares. Maybe Melania cares. But I, I don't see anything really that sticks with this guy. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how badly it'll hurt him. But again, in this city that's preparing for indictments, it's a really big deal. Well, in the city, it's not the country. So uh, is right. it possible that this will bring even more scorn and resignation to the legislators and to the actual political class that seems to think that this is the most important thing, whereas most people are just getting up and going to work? Yeah, that's a very good point. And people are going to have extra money in their paychecks. I think this economy is going to heat up. Unemployment goes below 4%. Maybe we get to 3.7 by the summer. So for, for many Americans, this is just yeah. a witch hunt, background noise. But again, in, in this town, I can't overstate, guys, how big an impact this story has had this morning. If you're just joining us worldwide, thrilled to bring you for an extended uh, amount of time this morning. Gregory Vellier of Horizon Investments, uh, his thoughts not only on his economic politics in Washington, but of course the moment in Davos, Switzerland. Pim Fox in New York. I'm Tom Keen in uh, uh, Davos. That's where I am right You're now. Still Davos, there. Switzerland. <laughs> you know, I'm getting to the point, Pim, where I'm waking up going, where am I? Okay. Uh, well, Davos, here, Switzerland. Let me let me ask Greg one, one other uh, question here, sure, which is that, um, all right, so let's say that this uh, investigation, uh, it proceeds and so on. Uh, is there a way for the president to just move beyond this by saying, okay, they made some mistakes, the people who are going to be indicted are indicted, let the justice system work, and get back to business? I think the, one of the very key factors is that it goes to Trump's 
family. Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner. Yes. It's really easy to get an indictment on perjury in a town as liberal as D.C. A grand jury will indict on perjury. Maybe there's something on money laundering. If it goes to his family, he's going to say enough is enough. This guy has gone too far. And, and within that, actually, this came up at breakfast this morning, Pim, uh, where, where, with the idea uh, that the president has different protections versus each and every other person. Greg, that's true that within all of this swirl that the president flies back to, he's playing by a different rule book because he's the president. Is that true? Absolutely, and I don't think he's used to being treated by people in, in quite this way, having his own family members come under scrutiny like this. So he could react in a, in a very host, hostile way. And, you yeah. know, there's one other angle, guys. He still has tremendous support uh, in the Republican Party, and I think a lot of Republicans in Congress are scared well, to take him on because they'd lose their primaries. Let's switch to uh, uh, the moment at hand, which is, of course, in Davos. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio uh, worldwide. Good morning, Radio London, and those listening digitally uh, in this Europe. Pim Fox in New York. I'm Tom Keen at these meetings. Uh, the World Economic Forum, and without question, I, I can say this, folks, without hesitation, the most extraordinary Friday in 48 years of meetings uh, in Davos. I've been here for 14 years, and there's flat out no comparison. I can't measure the number of people that came to the Congress Center today by foot, by fancy Mercedes-Benz, or on just the little shuttle or bus who uh, came with their suitcases, where you just got to believe they're going to listen to this hugely anticipated speech and then Get out of Dodge, which is what you do on Friday and a few people on Saturday uh, here in uh, Davos. The president will speak. Greg Vallier uh, with us. Uh, Greg, if, if I look here at uh, the speech and the way it's anticipated, I think it's changed. You wrote a few days ago that you thought this would really be something. You were right. But what's changed in the last few days is we listen to this speech. Well, here's my suspicion, guys. I think there was a lot of pushback from Wall Street types who contacted Trump and his advisors and said, look, you don't want to bash your own currency. You know, America first is one thing, but to, to talk down the dollar and to talk about trade disputes is not real constructive for the markets. So I think he's listened to that, so maybe he'll tone it down a bit today. Yeah. But I think there's a new mind frame on the dollar, and I, I think that the dollar with all of the mullish stuff, with trade right. disputes, I think the dollar may stay under pressure. Greg Vallier, thank you so much with Horizon Investments. Ibrahim Rabari uh, joining us now, head of global macroeconomics at Citigroup. That must have been wonderful news, Ibrahim, to hear that Catherine Mann would join your shop. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Tom. We were absolutely delighted that Catherine will join us very shortly in a few weeks. And even more delighted that our current chief economist, Willem Bowser, is going to stay with us. Yes. So I think it's, it's a great luck uh, for, I, I, for our organization. I should point out that Professor Bowder will continue as a senior advisor to all of the Citigroup platform. Ibrahim, what I noticed in there, and it made me think of Kathy Mann, was where the president twice mentioned free trade, fair trade, but then within our international economics, this odd word, reciprocity. What is reciprocity to a frontline economist like yourself? 
it is uh, in uh, a term of acute interest uh, because, of course, this is, I think, very much aimed at the ongoing uh, dialogue with China. Uh, and I think the concern that uh, China is not quite sticking to the same rules uh, as many other uh, countries in the world economy, including the U.S., but not only the U.S. Uh, you may have seen a number of other countries, the EU and Japan, also have expressed concerns about elements of trade uh, with China. And I think in this specific case, it means that we are likely to see further measures similar to some that we've seen over the last few weeks. You saw measures on solar panels and on washing machines. I think this is a pre-announcement that more is to follow in the next few months. Uh, Mr. Akbari, the uh, Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, uh, says, or at least a, a Bloomberg headline uh, has him saying that he was not trying to move the dollar by his comments. Uh, what do you have as uh, uh, any reaction or any thoughts about that? Uh, I have to say I'm, I'm, I was a little bit surprised about his comments. Uh, we have in the past, uh, together with, uh, with Bill and Bauter, we've written about the Treasury's strong dollar policy. We always thought it's a little bit of a misnomer for two reasons. One, because uh, over the last few decades, the dollar has actually depreciated fairly, fairly uh, consistently over longer horizons. And the second is that the Treasury is primarily concerned with, of course, funding the government and uh, low borrowing costs. So for me, uh, strong dollar really meant it's a stable asset, so you should extract a high price, i.e. low Treasury yields. So it didn't make a great deal of sense uh, for me to to express these sort of uh, uh, mixed sentiments about whether you would prefer a strong or a weak dollar. But it fits with the, I would say, a slightly more mercantilist uh, tone of uh, the policy debate in Washington when it comes to trade. Okay. And is it possible that not only the Treasury Secretary's comments, but more specifically the comments and the speech by President Donald Trump is part of an overall tactic for negotiations, particularly when it comes to trade? In other words, be uh, yes, strong, sure. be powerful, and be, uh, if you want, if you will, uh, sort of uh, strident so that you have a negotiating position that then really puts you uh, at an advantage when you have to sit down with Mexico and Canada, for example, uh, to renegotiate uh, NAFTA, as uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary uh, Wilbur Ross saying uh, that it is fixable. Yes, I do think that a lot of these statements obviously have a negotiations element to them. But at the same time, we, uh, we shouldn't think that they have purely a negotiation tactic in the sense that we, we should expect them to take action, to, to pursue more trade remedies, to impose more restrictions on uh, imports and also on probably foreign investment in the United States. Uh, of course, there's going to be an element of compromise, but right. I think that rhetoric will be followed up with action. Abraham, with, within all of this is a definition of multilateral, bilateral, and maybe a unilateral president. Now, the president made nice in the speech. Everyone can agree with that. But was it a true bilateral speech, or is it a bilateral speech that says if you play our way, then it'll be bilateral? Yes, I, I still think. I mean, the I think the key word of the uh, administration's new approach to trade is still sovereignty. Uh, and I think sovereignty is still much easier to, to uh, make consistent with bilateral arrangements and with multilateral arrangements, uh, in particular with bodies like the WTO, who seem to be uh, 
compromising sovereignty to some degree. I don't think we learned much in this speech about uh, about these issues, but I think it's, we should expect the focus to remain on bilateral. Uh, is there a possibility that we're going to see an increase in uh, acceleration in inflation uh, this year? And and I point to the uh, GDP, the first print for uh, gross domestic product in the United States at 2.6%. Uh, we were speaking earlier with uh, Greg Valliere. Uh, he was talking about how the possibility that the U.S. economy could overheat. I, it's it's certainly one of the major risks. I mean, uh, from from our perspective, we don't think we'll see much of a pickup in inflation, other than uh, for sort of statistical reasons. We have a number of statistical based effects over the course of this year in the U.S., but we think inflation, uh, underlying inflation, will be fairly close to two percent, and it's not that far uh, even now. But at the same time, I think inflation is a major risk. We have seen growing signs that we have labor shortages and that companies find it increasingly hard to find workers, which usually you should expect to push up wages somewhat. But we've also observed over the last few years that that link is by no means as, as close as it, as it used to be. It, when it came to the GDP number today, of course, it was a little bit below expectations, but it's still you know, meaningfully above what we think is probably the sustainable growth rate uh, in the U.S. So at the margin, I think, probably does uh, push inflationary pressure up, but as I said, really probably only very weakly. So I'm not holding my breath for inflation to pick up too aggressively this year. Does the president's speech at all challenge the particular leaders of Europe when it comes to things such as tax overhaul and regulation overhaul? I don't think necessarily the speech did, even though, of course, the president did a good job. Or he certainly tried very hard to sell the achievements of this administration. But I think the tax reform as such does. I mean, both both that uh, the corporate tax rate is being brought down significantly in the U.S., but also there are mm-hmm. a number of other uh, measures, the base erosion measures, uh, FDI-related measures, that I think do have a meaningful competitive impact. Uh, we should say, though, that... For example, looking at the corporate tax rate, the U.S. is really just moving to the middle of the pack. It was the laggard. Many other countries have been right. uh, reducing corporate tax rates over the last few decades. Abraham, one more question, uh, if we could, and we can make it quick. I know you've got to get to your travels, as everyone in Davos is doing. What does the Citigroup call on euro is a single point estimate. Deutsche Bank and George Cerevelis see the drama of 130. Can you give us a drama single point estimate? Like that? <laughs> I, I, I believe it's 128 or 129 at the end of this year. So okay. very close. It's certainly the idea that wow. it'll, it'll continue to be strong. That is remarkable. Imran Mubari, thank you so much. Just on short notice, he is head of global econo- macroeconomics, I should say, for uh, 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 Citigroup, uh, working, of course, with Willem Bowder and Catherine Mim- Here in Davos, we finished strong with someone who I've spoken to somewhere between six and 12 times. Uh, and I believe I've spoken to her on every continent of the earth, including Antarctica. And I am finally meeting her at Davos. Kei Jin is at the London School of Economics and has shingles from Harvard University. You studied under Kenneth Rogoff. That's correct. What level of torture is that? The best kind of torture, the best uh, mentor, I have to say. What do you do with Ken Rogoff when you don't get the math and he does? Well, I would, uh, I would, I would say I'm going to work harder. 
You're going to work harder. And, and that's that, the Chinese spirit, right? And there were no tears involved, I'm sure. Kao Jen, you become an immediate and important voice on uh, analysis of the Chinese economy, and it is perfect to have you to close out our coverage here. Because at every Davos, the last two days, there's a backstory. And I know, Mr. Trump, you're listening to this in the car to Marine One and then on to, Zira, uh, on to Zurich. I'm sorry, but the President of the United States wasn't the backstory. What was the backstory was China and the rekindling of TPP. How badly does America need this multilateral trade agreement that I believe does not include China? Look, you know, China is making its own efforts to create its own, you know, regional trade arrangement. Uh, part of the Belt Road Initiative is actually to enhance trade and these kind of relationships with each other. Um, the, the question is, you know, other countries such as Vietnam, the TPP is going forward even without the U.S.'s participation. So I think that um, on all aspects, you know, the regional trade is happening anyways. The regional trade is happening anyways. Take a given country. You mentioned Vietnam. Do I understand they can play it both ways? They can do TPP and they can also go down the trade road with China? Oh, absolutely. It's not just Vietnam. In fact, a lot of these countries, especially <clears throat> in Asia, are playing, what, in, my, in my view, a dangerous game, a political game, either siding with, let's say, India and the U.S. or in uh, China. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka was looking for infrastructure investment from China. However... Some political party came and said, you know, let's not side with China, let's side with the U.S. and India. And they were waiting for the loans, which never came. And they wanted to go back to China. And China was like, wait a second. That's, you know, so we're seeing a lot of these countries possibly playing mm -hmm. both sides, depending on what political party, what kind of political mission they have. A financial question. One of the great themes here from many on Asia and particularly Chinese government representatives is China has a better handle on monitoring, on understanding, on simply counting their challenged and enormous debt. Do you buy it? I actually do buy it in the sense that the numbers look worrisome, to say the least, and there are other problems like excess capacity and slowing growth. Mm -hmm. However, the difference is that the government has a huge array of tools and instruments, and they can coordinate lenders and borrowers at any given single time. So the point is that it does look, the numbers look worrisome, but um, at a moment of need, there will be no financial panic because the government will step in. And that, I think, is different from the West. If you're just joining us, K.O. Jin of the London School of Economics, as we close out our Davos coverage here, and without question the theme of the last 48 hours away from the distraction of the president uh, visiting, and that, of course, uh, is on, uh, uh, on China. The president mentioned fair, free, and trade reciprocity, a huge body of Americans would suggest we're not doing free or fair trade with China. How do you take free, fair, and reciprocity and bring it over to this strategic relationship? I think that what we are not giving enough credit to China is right now, or at least we're not aware of, is that they need to <coughs> turn from systemic taker to giver. And they are actually making strides, even though that might take some time, to, towards that, to, to be able to give back to the global system. So when the President Trump came to China, uh, China made some concessions in terms of liberalizing certain financial services. That is actually a signal that China, from now on, will start to give back to the global system. But 
this the result resolution of these problems by having trade wars and by ter- slapping terrorists you know onto each other is not really the best well, solution paul krugman wrote about it this morning and folks for those of you that are critics of the professor this maybe happens to be his wheelhouse in talking about washing machines and solar panels am i right when you teach at lse and you throw chalk at the young undergraduates uh you would suggest there's lose-lose in these kind of decisions that the president made you know, the, the trade models, that's what the trade models tell you. That's what, you know, uh, in theory. That's what the research you. The research tells, tells you. It doesn't talk about employment. It doesn't talk about inequality issues, which are obviously very important. But we're ascribing a lot more of these current problems to trade than to technology because trade is a me versus us versus them. But technology would be us versus robots. So obviously under political pressure, trade is a great way to blame others. Uh, Dr. Krugman talks about the findings of the United States International Trade Commission. And this is very sophisticated stuff, folks. The idea that a given thing, in this case, washing machines, uh, didn't take away any US jobs but there would have been U.S. jobs created if they weren't competing with us. That's pretty original, isn't it, that we're almost extrapolating out a trade to be? Well, I think, you know, first of all, solar panels, <clears throat> washing machines, let me just say that China's trying to get rid of a lot of that excess capacity anyways. It's trying to move out of lower-end manufacturing, so it's so not the, so they, fatal. This, but this is critical. It's not about washing machines coming back to the United States. The washing machines are built in Vietnam. Exactly. Well, a lot of these will <clears throat> not move back to the U.S. It will be moved to other countries. However, what we ignore is that through the exports of China into the U.S., it's created a lot of jobs on services, business services. And the r- most recent academic study says that when you properly account for the jobs that Chinese exports or Chinese imports from the U.S. perspective create on net trade, you know, jobs were not uh, displaced in great numbers. I, I look at, um, I just, uh, unfortunately, time for one more question. We look forward to seeing you in London great. and in New York. Professor Chin, when I look at uh, uh, all of the president's speech, it seems to be an original bilateralism. This is what America's going to do. And if you want to participate, great. How will China respond to the Trump message versus more traditional international relations that we've seen for decades? To be completely candid, China understands the importance of a country first. (laughs) However, China's going to take the other role of creating global platforms cooperation. I think that is the difference in approach. Kyujin, thank you so much for joining us today on short notice. She was here, of course, observing the president like any and all. She's professor of economics at London School of Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.